Well, a very pleasant good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good to see all of you. I am uh, quite sure that there are probably a number of you who have heard of the story about the chicken and the pig walking down the road in town. And as they're walking down the road in town, they happen to notice in a cafe nearby, and neon lights flashing, all-American breakfast, ham and eggs, $3.99. And as they looked at that, and the chicken made the comment to the pig, isn't it so incredibly wonderful that we can make such a wonderful contribution to the all-American breakfast, ham and eggs? And of course, the pig replied to the chicken, to you it may be a contribution, but to me it's total commitment. And you think about that. It is giving its all. There are so many ways in which we are to commit ourselves as Christians to the service of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to really our everyday walk and everything that has to do with our being Christians. And I think that commitment is a subject of which we should never really grow tired. We should certainly never stop thinking about it. We have just sung a song based upon the words of the Apostle Paul as we find in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. And you would be reminded that the Apostle Paul has written this final epistle that we have extant of the New Testament as he is in prison. As a matter of fact, we know that death is imminent for him. In chapter 4, he says, The time of my departure is at hand. And he speaks of his great confidence because of the hope that he had. But when Paul had written this epistle to Timothy, who could have very well still been preaching at Ephesus at the time when Paul wrote this, there Paul says to Timothy, For this reason, I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm always wanting to say, I know whom I have believed, as we sing in the song. But I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. If there's anyone that's a standout figure in the New Testament, among the Christians of that day, that serves in so many respects as such an example of commitment, I think all of us that are familiar with the New Testament text understand that the Apostle Paul is indeed a standout. Would you not agree? And the kind of life, the kind of commitment that he made to Jesus Christ, especially when we think about his background and what it was that he came out of, what he turned his back on, that which he even referred to later on, uh, or earlier in his ministry anyway, is nothing more than, than garbage, or even as the King James would say, dung. We know that as he found a new life in Christ Jesus, this was something that he did with full total commitment. As we explore the pages of God's word, God is never looking within us partial commitment, any kind of part commitment, but he wants every bit of our lives and everything that we can offer to him, what we might refer to as a total commitment indeed. So I appreciate the opportunity to be able to come 
and to share with you for these next few days and what's something we're going to be re- referring to as the essence of Christ-centered commitment. Because it's multifaceted. It is not something that just has one or two dimensions. It is something that, again, affects every part of our lives as Christians. And even when we are trying to reach out to people with the gospel of Christ and showing them this is the only way to be pleasing to God, the only way that we can make the final destination heaven, we have to tell them that there is something involved in this. And we count the cost with people and the cost of which we see in so many respects. It's a full-hearted commitment to the Lord. And so here we are going to be discussing this subject for these next three days. I kind of wanted to give you uh, what we're going to be looking at as we look at the essence of Christ-centered commitment, excitement this evening. Tomorrow morning we'll have two lessons tomorrow, but enlargement, and then close tomorrow with evangelistic that Christ-centered commitment is evangelistic, then on Sunday it is excellence, it is execution, and it is exaltation. And I figured uh, that Miss Carrie would like the alliteration. By the way, I got to thinking, too, that a large percentage, when you think about the, the group of people that are here, that there's actually a significant percentage of people here tonight of whom I have performed the wedding ceremony for. <laughs> and not only, of course, for... a. Uh, for Mark and Carrie, but also some guests that you have, Gary and Mary Sue Franklin, who have come over from the Al- from the Birmingham area, and uh, we go way back with them as well. How many years ago were you all married? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven going years. On Twenty-eight. Going on twenty-eight, and and I think in Mark and Carrie, we said it was two thousand eight, was it not? In any way, but uh, it, when you think about the number, that actually ends up becoming kind of a good percentage of how many people here. But we are just so appreciative, and I just want to say to you all right now of how grateful that both Vicki and I are for the opportunity to be able to come with you, to be here with you, and to uh, share in this time with you, and to be able to be with Mark and Carrie. And I've actually, Vicki and I have actually known Carrie since she was very, very, very young, and go way back with, with her family, and with her grandparents, and her parents, and her, and her, her uncle Maurice, and, 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 and anyway, so it means a lot to us to be able to be here with you. Think about this for a moment, if you will. The sloth, and maybe some of you are kind of familiar, if you're familiar with any Disney movies at all, and those kinds of movies with Flash from Zootopia, right? But I want you to think about the idea, the concept of a sloth. A sloth is a tree-dwelling mammal that is renounced for its its laziness. In fact, it has been said that its lethargy is so great that it will often forego pursuing food beyond an arm's reach or length and endangering its own health. I don't know how true that is. They eat and they survive, but I do know this that when we think of a sloth, they are slow. And what I find interesting about that is that when the King James Version of the Bible was translated, and it really even predates 1611 when you look at some of the old English translation of Scripture, the translators found it very interesting to identify the idea of one 
who is lazy or is indolent as being slothful. And some of you might remember some of these scriptures. For example, we would find in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, when the Apostle Paul is encouraging brethren there at Rome, and he says to them in verse 11, tell them in in their, their work as Christians and their duties or responsibilities within the church, and he says, in diligence not slothful, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And in fact, in that, the idea of fervency serves very much as the exact opposite of one who is slothful. Again, of laziness. We would also find that in the book of Hebrews, that the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 12 says, that you be not slothful, as this is encouraging an exhortation to Christians, that you be not slothful, but followers of them, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And of course, he has given various examples and on both sides within the book of Hebrews, those that had been slothful, those who had been very negligent in their duty before God, even as he speaks about old Israel often. But then there are some examples, of course, as we would get particularly to chapter 11, of those who exhibited great faith and they served God. But here is his encouragement to them, and he's admonishing them, he's warning them to not be slothful, but to be followers of them through who through faith and patience inherit the promise. You'll then remember as well, when Jesus gave the parable of the talents, and of the parable of the talents, of that one man to whom the master had given, the Lord had given the one talent, you find this conclusion that Jesus made, that idle one-talent man was called, there you find in Matthew 25 and verse 26, a wicked and slothful servant. And he was condemned, as we would read on in the passage, he was condemned to the outer darkness. Brethren, I, I want us to be able to see in this and I'm going to really kind of keep myself because I'm usually, because I don't want to offend you, offend you, ma'am, because I could be stepping on your toes. And I don't mean that. Well, you can take that any way you want. But, but the point is I'm going to try to keep my space. But I want you to really be thinking about this, the warning that is given to Christians, given to disciples of Jesus Christ. And it brings us to a question. And the question that I want to ask you, and I, I ask this to you unapologetically, are we excited to be Christians? Are we excited to be disciples of Christ that we've been given an opportunity, yes, the blessing, to be able to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be in this covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Because I want to say to you that discipleship ought to be exciting. If you would take your Bibles, and let's all turn together, and over to John, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, and we're going to cut kind of right into the middle of the context here, and we know that we know that Jesus has called some of his very first disciples earlier on in, in this chapter, after John gives this magnificent introduction or opening uh, in this gospel into the identity of Jesus Christ as the Word. But I want you to drop on down, if you would, to verse 43, just a few verses that we're going to look at here momentarily, just for a moment. But in John chapter 1 and verse 43, in the narrative, the Apostle John writes, The next day... Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. I want you to think about those words for just a moment. And as we look at this, and we see in verse 45 again, that we, Philip's voice, and I want you to notice, I believe, what is demanded in the context is the excitement in Philip's voice. When he finds his brother Nathaniel, and he says to him there again in verse 45, We have found him. We have found him. Of whom Moses in the law, and also the prophets, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What is Nathaniel's response? It's infamous. It's infamous. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's an interesting study itself. When you look at that city, that town, and those days of antiquity, and some of the background and the information, and some of the kinds of characters that had come out of that town, and there we see him making this response, can anything come good out of, of, of Nazareth? And while his response is infamous, I would suggest to you that Philip's reply is timeless. Come and see. Come and see. And the reason why I say it's timeless is because any time that we have an opportunity, and these opportunities present themselves all of the time around us. They do. They do in the job. They do in the neighborhood. They do in our schools. They do in all kinds of activities that we have opportunities to be able to tell people in reference to Jesus Christ, come and see. And I'll tell you, there should be an excitement that is involved in that. Now, there are no diacritical markings, such as an exclamation mark, within the Greek text. You're not going to find that in the Greek text. They don't put commas, they don't put periods, they don't put question marks, they don't put exclamation marks. And so what you have to do is that you have to look at it in its contextual standing. And I'll tell you, I believe that this is seen, it's understood in the context, that we see the excitement in Philip's voice when we look at this. How can you not hear the excitement in Philip's voice. You know, earlier in the same chapter, here in John chapter 1, remember that back in verse 36, not too far away? In that same chapter, John the Baptist stood with two of his disciples, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. Now, John knew precisely, John the Baptist knew precisely who Jesus was. But I want to tell you again that John, in his introduction of who Jesus is to his own disciples, that there is going to be a sense of excitement. Behold the Lamb of God. And one of the two, Andrew, went out immediately and found his brother, Simon Peter. And we don't know a whole lot about Andrew. We know so much more about Simon Peter. And when we think about those apostles, and we have uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and we look at, at Andrew, and we look at Simon Peter, and we know so much about, about Peter and, and, and his place, that where he was, and, and all that he did in the New Testament. And yet, who was it that introduced him to Jesus? It was Andrew. And in verse 41, in verse 41 of that opening, he says, We have found the Messiah. Brethren, all I can say to you is that we should exhibit no less excitement in our discipleship, in our being Christians today. We should exhibit a kind of excitement because of who we are and what God has allowed us to be in this relationship. It is remarkable. It is a blessing. Several years ago, there was a lady who was a member of a particular charismatic type of church 
And the lady once said about our fellowships that as she was familiar with individuals who were members of the churches of Christ, and she said, you people just don't have much power. You people just don't have much energy. Now, as confused as I believe that she was about spiritual gifts and that charismatic movement, her words still disturbed me. Because, brethren, I say to you that we need some power and we need some energy. We need zeal. We need zeal as disciples of Christ because a lack of energy and zeal, it absolutely will result in boredom. If we do not find ourselves becoming zealous for the Lord and exhibiting and having this energy that we are to have as Christians, that can lead to boredom. And I just wonder how many people there are, and I don't mean just during services where people might get bored sitting in the pews, and I hope we're not there yet. But I'm just talking about the day-to-day of being a Christian and what it means and what it looks like. Because boredom can lead to sin. It very much reminds me of a marriage relationship. And I'll tell you there are times that boredom in a marriage can lead to some very troubling things, including infidelity. So the question becomes, and we want to be faithful to the Lord in all ways, The question becomes, how can I get more excited about the cause of Christ? How can I do that? This is what I want us to really think about and to take this very, very personally, individually. In fact, that's going to be the real first point here in just a moment. But how can I get more excited about my commitment to Christ? This is increasingly important when you think about it. There are a few things that I want to share with you. In fact, there will be four main points that I just want to share with you in this evening's lesson on commitment and excitement. And the very first one is by appreciating Christ's sacrifice for me. That one of the ways in which I can get more excited about my commitment to Christ is by my true gratitude, my appreciation, what Christ has done for me. And it is here that we see Paul's personal appreciation come out loud and clear, as you would notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Now, just a few moments ago, I already gave a little bit of background that most of you are very familiar with anyway. We know Paul's background. We know to what extent that the Apostle Paul, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, when he was the fair-haired boy of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, when he went about looking for disciples, looking for Christians, incarcerating some of them, even seeing to the death of them, including Stephen in Acts chapter 7, holding the coats and the cloaks of, of those individuals that are stoning Stephen to death because Stephen was preaching the gospel. And here is, here is Saul who now becomes a Christian. We read of his conversion in chapter 9. He speaks of his own conversion numerous times in the book of Acts. And there is the Apostle Paul. And now he is a dedicated Christian. He's devoted his life to the cause of Christ. I've often thought about that. And there's, if there's anyone that understood of what God's forgiveness is and how powerful the blood of Jesus Christ is and appreciation of that is, is the Apostle Paul. There's no question in my mind. But I want you to think about this. Do you think that there at least was the possibility that there are times that Paul may have woken up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, perhaps even of nightmares because of things that he had done in the past? 
Probably if he had human blood flowing through his veins, and he did. But yet in all of that, we have this wonderful expression that Paul makes in 1 Timothy 1.15. And he says, this is a faithful saying, and it is worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul had no misgivings about his being a Christian. His position as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he fully understood that. But what he also understood was that how personal this was. And when he says this is a faithful saying, this is a saying that you can count on, that you can depend upon. And he says that Christ, Jesus came to the world to save sinners in which he identifies himself as one who is chief. I tell you, I think all of us need to have that attitude. I think about it often. I think about it often, that Jesus suffered and died on the cross of Calvary for me, Brent Willie. That he would do that. That he had me in mind somehow. That all of us, and for those especially, that would come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. To obey the precious saving gospel of Christ. And I'll tell you, that, that is how personal that it should be. For every one of us to take it that personally. To have that appreciation. And how can we not be excited in our commitment to Christ when every day that we think about what it is that Christ did for us and now the opportunity that we have. This is a very personal matter. There was an account that was given, a story that was told here some years ago. And in a congregation, a preacher was preaching and he was being very, very descriptive about what Jesus did for us. And he talked about his arrest, and he talked about his being taken and going through the mockery of trials. And he, and he spoke, and he went to scriptures that were depicted of Jesus being scourged, and Jesus being beaten, and smote upon with the face, and Jesus and having the, the thorn of crowns crushed upon his head, and being nailed to, to the cross. And the preacher was being very graphic about it, very clear with what the scriptures are teaching. And here's Jesus as he's bleeding on the cross, and that, he's, and that he has this attitude, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. And as the preacher is going along, that a woman was sitting next to her young son, about 12 years old. And she looked over at her young son, and she saw that, that tears were coming down his face, the 12-year-old. And she said to him, Son, she whispered to him, Don't take it so personally. How else was he supposed to take it? Brother, I'm telling you, friends, I'm telling you that we do need to take it personally. That the story of the cross is an emotional story without question, but it's real, and it happened, and it happened for you and for me. And so when we look at this, and we ask this question, how can I get more excited about my commitment to Jesus Christ? I think one of the very first things that we need to do is to show this appreciation factor. That because of such grand appreciation or gratitude that we have for what Jesus has done, then, then we are going to take it personally. This is no ho-hum issue. You all ever sing the song here, Wonderful Grace of Jesus? It's a song that I've been singing since I was a young child. Wonderful Grace of Jesus. We sing Amazing Grace. We sing all of these songs about the wonderful grace of God. The love of God. Songs that depict, again, what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is no ho-hum issue. And another one of the Apostle Paul's statements when he wrote his letter to Titus, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. And in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, there Paul says, For the grace of God 
that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It goes on to say teaching us what not to do and what to do. But I want you just get to key in on verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That doesn't mean that all men have accepted it. But it is there for all men. It is there for everyone. It's certainly not just some limited few. It is there for all. But I'll tell you what. It's God's grace that is being extended to every one of us. And to our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and our, our family members. And, and whomever it might be, fellow students. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And I ask you the question very personally. Do you truly... Do you truly appreciate Christ's sacrifice that he's made for you? I think one of the most interesting accounts or stories takes us to the author of that song, Amazing Grace. Many of you probably know the story. I won't go into all of that. But of his background, a man by the name of John Newton, a man that was born in 1725, died in, in, in 1807. He became an abolitionist. But we know that in his young years that he was involved as a, as a ship's captain and in, on those ships that would, would bring over the blacks, the Africans, and bring them over to the New World in the slave trade that was going on at the time. And as he reflected upon that, he was very much influenced by a couple of individuals' lives, and he looked at that and he felt very, very terrible about how he had devoted his time to that particular thing. And as he looked at that and he made this change in his life. And because of that, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. The saved poor wretch like me. But I'll tell you something else that John Newton said later in his life. In his own journey, in his own journey of faith or in his own walk. And I'll tell you, this is, is something that has just stuck with me for a lot of years. And John Newton once said, I know I am not what I ought to be. And I know I am not what I'm going to be. But thank God I am not what I used to be. And my friends, all I can tell you is that we need to appreciate what Christ's sacrifice is and has been for us. And hopefully what that will motivate us to become and to be more dedicated, more committed, more devoted as time goes on. How can I get more excited about my commitment to Christ? Let me suggest to you, secondly, by my personal regeneration. My personal regeneration. And what I mean by personal regeneration, this has got to be true of, of every individual. The way that people come to God, the way that people come to the Lord, is not by generation, it's by regeneration. Now, we're going to do all that we can. And I know I'm looking out and I see a good number of parents and I see a good number of children. And I know I'm seeing a number of grandparents as well. Vicki and I, we have three children. They're married, and we've been blessed to have, we have four grandchildren. And there's no doubt about it that not only do I want to see my children serve God so that they too one day can go to heaven, and I'll tell you, that's what I want for my four grandchildren as well. 
And we feel very, very blessed and fortunate that our children are faithful Christians. And I'll tell you, we feel even more blessed that they all worship with us and the grandkids do too. And if you think I'm bragging, well, I am. <laughs> if you sit here for the next few days, anyway, that'll be good. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. While we do what we can, and we try to give them this spiritual momentum, we bring them into the world, and we need to teach them the right things and do the right things and be the right example. But when all comes down to it, the time comes, they become Christians. If they become Christians, truly become Christians and serve God, it's not because so much of generation. It will be because of regeneration. Because they will see their need. Their need to find forgiveness in the Lord to come into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ and their obedience to the gospel and their faith, their own repentance, their baptism into Christ, and that's personal regeneration. Now, when we transfer this idea to all of us, and I know that I'm speaking to a good many of you that have been Christians for a good number of years. And we're looking at this of, of our excitement and about our commitment to Jesus Christ. And we reflect upon what Christ has done and this personal regeneration. I remind you then and yet of another statement of the Apostle Paul. As you find in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a text that is known very well probably to, to most or if not to all of you. But the Apostle Paul says, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And again, if there's anyone that could testify to that, who experienced that, who was glad to share that message with others, it was Paul himself. Because when he saw that recreation, if you will, in his own life, that renewment that took place in his own life because of his past, because of his being, as he admitted, a chief of sinners in so many respects. And yet he became that new creation. He is now appealing. He's appealing and reminding these, these brethren in Corinth in, this, in the second epistle to them that this is what it's all about. That if anyone is in Christ, they're truly in Christ, he's a new creation. And the old things have passed away. And the old things need to be left in the past. Behold, all things have become new. And that is a regeneration. And you want to know something? That if we have the right attitude, and so much of this is about attitude, if we have the right attitude, then we can feel that regeneration or at least appreciate that regeneration every day. I'll tell you what. And what I love about, I love about Mark and in the time I've got to know him in these last few days, even more so than ever. Last time I saw him in California, they were, you know, busy. By the way, did I tell you that they got married on on January the 1st? Did I tell you that the wedding at, was on the on Pacific Coast time that was 1 o'clock in the afternoon? Did I, do you know that that's the Rose Bowl? But anyway. Yeah, exactly. But I'll tell you what I appreciate about Mark. Mark wakes up happy. And he's happy. And you can tell. And, and, and what I want to say about that is that I feel that even though we all have challenges in life and there's difficulties and, and there are things, there's obstacles and those things that come to us every day, just practically every day. And yet, may we never lose this sense of appreciation for the regeneration that we have and the feeling of that regeneration and being renewed day by day. What the outward man is what decaying, and yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's what he told them earlier on. It's exactly we're being renewed, a regeneration. My friends, don't lose the newness 
of being a Christian. Remember how you felt when you first obeyed the gospel of Christ. I obeyed the gospel of Christ of May of 1967. Don't faint. Okay. But May of 1967. I remember it so very well. And, and my father baptized me into Christ. And that I just, I'm so glad. That was a wonderful thing as my daddy was able to do that. But I remember even the excitement of that time. And I want you to think back to the time that when you heard the gospel and you obeyed the gospel and you made that decision. And when you made that decision because of your faith and, and, and you, you, you gave that confession of faith and, and you knew you wanted your sins forgiven and you were immersed. You had your sins washed away and you were in Christ Jesus. And we see that in Christians and young new Christians and we look at this excitement that takes place. They have it. There's an energy. There's an excitement. You know what really bothers me? is you see them sometimes, they want to do this, and they want to do that, and they want to teach these people, and they want to convert all their family, and they want to, they want to do all these wonderful things for the Lord, and then you have some of the Christians that are kind of sitting back, and they well, they'll get over that. And with their attitude, they kind of help them along of getting over that. What I'm saying to you is that we must not lose the excitement and the appreciation that we are Christians, that we have been personally regenerated. Don't lose that. But beware, because what can happen to that sense of regeneration, which is so tied to commitment? There are some things that become obstacles, if you will. There are some things that can really interfere with the sense of regeneration and every day knowing that I'm walking with God, that I'm in right relationship with God. And that's so important as we're going to illustrate tomorrow in a couple of different ways. But that's so important because I'll tell you right now, brethren, the clock is ticking. And I tell you, we all have our own biological time clocks, not to mention the fact we don't know when the Lord's going to return. But the whole point is that the clock is ticking and that we don't need obstacles to rob us of the newness of Christ, to rob us of our commitment to Christ, and to take away from us that sense and feeling of regeneration on a daily basis. But there are things that will do it. You know what? You don't know me and I don't know you completely fully. And the thing that we have to look at very openly, personally, and to be honest with ourselves, is to realize that concealed sin destroys the excitement of being a Christian. I, you know, did I turn that on? I can't remember. I'm so sorry if I didn't. All of a sudden I looked at that and looked at me. Oh, good. Retract the last 10 seconds. It hit me, and I thought, I hope I did. <laughs> I apologize for that. Where was I? Concealed sin. Concealed sin. I want you to think about that as well. You see, concealed sin destroys the excitement of being a Christian. And I'm afraid that there are too many people that are in the body of Christ, and they may go to church services on a very regular basis, and there may be a lot of things going on, and yet that concealed sin is doing a couple of things. One of the things, it's destroying fellowship with God. But the other thing it does is it takes the true joy out of being a Christian to being a child of God. Obviously, one of the great Old Testament examples of that would be David's concealed sin. It illustrates the point. When we think of a couple of the Davidic Psalms in Psalm 38 and verse 3, 
Just listen to David's words as he reflects on some mistakes in his lives and at times when sin just kind of overtook his life. In verse 3, he says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are all full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil in my heart. I so often thought about David and his concealment of sin, and especially when you look at those periods of time with with the sin that he had, with the the adultery with, with Bathsheba and that whole scenario. In fact, we know that the 51st Psalm that is written because of that And in many respects, it's a psalm, yes, of repentance and of remorse and of appealing to God to be renewed, to be regenerated, if you will. And in one of the great expressions in the 51st Psalm in verse 10, there he reaches out to God in writing the psalm, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Because that concealed sin, it had to be eating him up. until, And then when it was exposed as it was, what a change. Brethren, all I can tell you is this is where we need to find in ourselves and to make sure that we're not allowing that to happen and that we've got to offer genuine repentance. And when it is genuine repentance, the Apostle Paul says, genuine repentance will never be regretted. Never be regretted. Ever. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death oh he's not talking about salvation being regretted he's talking about this godly sorrow this that produces repentance he says that godly sorrow that produces in other words you have cause and effect that godly sorrow when you're truly truly sorrowful and it leads to repentance that'll never be regretted you look back and say that is the best thing i could have ever done i want to just say to you when we ask this question how can i get more excited about my commitment to christ of how personal this is that yes by appreciating Christ's sacrifice for me and that by my own personal regeneration and just seeing how important that is but then when we ask the question again how can I get more excited about my commitment to Jesus Christ and we'll be talking about this in various ways or respects as the time progresses for tomorrow and even on this coming Sunday. But as we talk about by participating in the Lord's work, how can I get more excited about my commitment to Christ? I want to tell you it has so much to do with about participation, about involvement. And again, tonight I'm just going to scratch the surface, but we're going to be developing this point. But I just want to share this with you. For a good number of years, for eight years, I coached... uh, High school football, Morro Bay High School, and uh, enjoyed every bit of it. And there's one thing that we used to talk about is when we were getting and recruiting players and guys that wanted to play on the football team. And there was something we talked about all the time, and as looking at our program and looking at what we were trying to do and getting to do, and we use this expression to buy in, to buy in. Does that kind of make sense to everybody, that expression, to buy in? And I've thought about that a lot because there are those that, that would not buy in and they wouldn't do the work and they didn't have the right attitude and, 
and you could see it in practice, and you could see it, really see it in performance. And you think, well, the problem is they didn't buy in. Well, I don't mean to be so base or to be so crass as to use that kind of analogy in, in any demeaning way to when it comes to our commitment to Christ, but I'm just going to say and ask you to please forgive me for this type of, of analogy, except to say, I'll tell you what, that we need to buy in. And I'm afraid that there are too many people that occupy pews even that haven't bought in. And then we're wondering, and I'll tell you, it's happening across the country. It certainly happened in our state, in the state of California. We've talked about a lot about this in the last couple of days. And Mark has talked to me about what's been going on in Mississippi, and I've had great opportunity to preach from coast to coast, from Canada to Mexico and beyond, and, and you're seeing it in far too many places, and that congregations are dwindling, congregations are short, shutting their doors. Have you seen any of that anywhere nearby where you are? And there's a lot of reasons for that unquestionably, but I'll tell you what, it comes down to the bottom line, a lot of it is is because people won't buy in and they just won't really involve themselves, participate in the Lord's work of which the Lord has asked them to do through His Word without question. You know, going to work is all about attitude. I heard somebody once say, well, work? That's just another four-letter word, (laughs) okay? Now, I love my work. I love what I do. I mean, I've been preaching full-time for 42 years. Started shortly after we were married when we were 12. (laughs) Well, not really. But I love what I do. I love going to work. But wouldn't you agree with me, and there's probably all different kinds of occupations that are represented by you all here this evening, but going to work has got a lot to do with attitude, doesn't it? And about how your work day is going to go and how you're going to do. It's got a lot to do with attitude. I believe that that's the case. It's all about attitude. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he identifies Christians, and he had just talked about, remember up here in Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldliness, and, and that we're to live soberly and righteously in Christ Jesus and so forth. But he talks there in verse 14. When you drop down in, into verse 14, he, there he, he makes this point of, of who Christians are, who the, the people of Christ's disciples are, and he identifies them as God's own special people, zealous for good works. Uh, you may have a translation that says a peculiar people. And the idea of peculiar there is not strange or odd that we may come across as strange or odd to the world for a lot of reasons, and many of them good reasons only because their view, of per, uh, their view of perspective is just is out, is wrong. But we are to be different, without question. Without question. But what it really means that we are a people of God's own possession. I tell you, we ought to feel good about that. We ought to feel very blessed about that, that God looks and He looks upon you and says, My people, my people. But what He says is that we are identified Christians are identified as God's own special people, zealous for good works. There's a couple of Greek words that that really deal, they're synonyms that that deal with the idea of zeal and deal with fervor, and and we don't have to really go into that kind of a word study. I think most of us understand that that kind of, that boiling point, that, that, that has got a lot of fervency to it and activity, but zealous for good works. But here's the thing that amazes me. I, I'm, I'm so amazed. I, I find it fascinating, amusing. But I'm very amazed by what it is that people get excited about. 
And there are these things that people will just get so excited about. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. You know, we were, we we're having this discussion at dinner, you know, and it's March Madness. And, 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 and Jerry, I, I appreciate you being here. I do. Okay? He said he is recording the game. But I appreciate you being here. And, you know, I can't get too excited about basketball. I was a wrestler. We had a t-shirt that says it's better to have wrestled and lost than to have played basketball, but that's another issue. <laughs> but, you know, we get excited about various things, and, and there may be things in this life, and, and it, just, it, it just, I find it very interesting, and you can bring up some subject, and be, oh, well, you know what, that's what I do, and, and, and I've devoted this time and this much money, and all of this energy to doing these things, and then all of a sudden you begin to ask, well, what about when it comes to our commitment to the Lord, our participation in the Lord's work, and that needs to be done is the excitement still there? Is that excitement there that leads us, that motivates us to participation? I just want to offer another little warning sign, a danger sign. And I just say to you, my friends, that a loss of excitement results in leaving your first love. Remember, even though Ephesus in, in Revelation chapter 2 of among the seven churches of Asia, the very first church to be addressed was the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And there's some commendations that were given by the Lord. You've done this and you've done this. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Their first love, no doubt, was to be Jesus Christ. And I wonder about them. I love what William Barclay says in, in, in his commentary about that particular saying about Ephesus losing their first love because it just talked about the very things that they stood for and that they believed in right down the line. And yet something had happened. The zeal was gone. The passion was gone. Maybe love for one another was gone, wasn't being exhibited. But here's what Barclay said. He says, it seems that when it came to the church at Ephesus, that they, when it came to doctrine, when it came to knowing what the truth is, here's the truth. He says, they were straight as a gun barrel, but just as empty. Think about that. Brethren, we need to have the right teaching, the right doctrine, to believe in the right things. But I tell you what, what good is it if we're not doing it, if we're not participating, if we're not being involved as we should? Don't lose your first love. First love is so important. We, Vicki is my first love. She is. And always has been. Only girl I ever dated Started dating when we were 16 years old. Got married at 19. The fact of the matter is, now that you have the, the, the I'll put some real facts together, not 12. And we're both the same age. I won't tell you who's 11 days older. I, Vicky and I went to, to third, fourth, and fifth grade together. She's the only girl I ever kissed. Except for Becky Ryder in kindergarten, come to think of it. School bus, and I said, Becky, look at my picture in the school bus. And she turned around, and she looked at this little drawing we had done in kindergarten. I reached over, and I gave her a kiss. And you know those bus drivers, they got those great big mirrors up there, right? And he saw every bit of it, and he got an intercom and said, Brent, do not kiss the girls on the bus. I was mortified, but I'll tell you what was more mortifying. Years ago, we ran into Becky Ryder at Albertsons at the store, and I reminded her of that, of that. 
and she didn't remember it, and I was all the more crushed. But I just say to you that Vicky's my first love, and she's still exciting. We'll be married. October will be 48 years. Don't leave your first love. Why is it that some have left? Why have some left their first love? Why have some left Christ and his church? And we can blame it on a lot of things. I alluded earlier on because of that slothful man that Jesus talked about, the one talent man. Remember the parable of talents in Matthew chapter 25? But when you think about, again about that one talent man, something, that man that was called a wicked servant, he was called slothful, he was called lazy. He did not involve himself. And it says that he was afraid. And when he gave this explanation, a poor excuse of an explanation of why he took his talent and he took that measurement of money and he went and he buried it in the ground, he hid it. And he says, for I was afraid. I'll tell you right now, too many people become immobilized by fear. Perhaps he was immobilized by fear when he buried his talent. Perhaps the fear of doing something wrong, the fear of losing something, of losing what he had. Maybe it was just the fear of fear itself. But his lack of commitment to his master generated no excitement whatsoever, no fervency in spirit. And that is a tragic, tragic, yes, sad pitiful thing. Jesus said of him in verse 26 of Matthew 25, you wicked and slothful servant. Well, I want to close with you with really just one passage in mind. And our final thought as we ask this question, how can I get more excited about my commitment to Christ? May I suggest to you find that this evening, ladies and gentlemen, by keeping my sights set on the gold. And please take your Bibles, your New Testaments, and turn over to Philippians to Philippians chapter 3, where we just want to read a few passages here, verses principally verses 12 through 15. The Apostle Paul, who we have spoken of much this evening because of his commitment, because of his example. And finally, Paul, and he also wrote this during his first imprisonment. And verse 12 says to these brethren in Philippi, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Again, I say to you that Paul had no misgivings about his apostleship, his discipleship, his commitment to Christ. I don't believe that Paul had any sense of arrogance in his life, even when there are times that he He asked the brethren in Corinth to forgive him for a moment as he talked about his background to make a point of how he tried and did excel in so many different ways. He didn't do so in the spirit of arrogance, but simply to make a point to them and trying to motivate them, to set them on fire, to get them going, to get them committed, to get get up and get going. And here's Paul, though, 
and there's so many things that he experienced and the great successes that he had, but the travail that he went through, all of the experience that he had, and yet one thing Paul says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He knew that God wasn't done with him yet. And as long as he had life, as long as he had life, he had breath, he was going to live for Christ. What an example that is. What is more exciting than the anticipation of heaven? What is more exciting than that? We sing as we did this evening. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Brethren, I want to ask you right now, we sing it, do we believe that? Do we sing it with the spirit and with the understanding? Do we believe that? Can we say with Paul, as he says to these brethren in Philippi, can we say with Paul that I press on, I press on? You know why? Another song, because I'll live on. Yes, I'll live on. It is said that the most exciting part of a vacation or a trip is so much the anticipation of the going, the excitement of the going. You think about it and you make plans and all what you're going to do and what you've got to pack and the things you want to see, things you want to do, and just all the excitement that is there. Much like a child, so much of the anticipation of, of waiting for, for a special day like birthday or Christmas or whatever it is, and children get so excited about it and there's that anticipation. And I would only hope that that kind of excitement, that anticipation of our, when we've set our sights on the goal of heaven, that that is something that keeps us motivated and keeps us excited. My friends, the spiritual preparation and marvelous anticipation of the glories of heaven should keep us plenty excited. So I bring this down to a very personal level. How are we preparing ourselves? How are you preparing yourself? But this mindset, as Paul says in verse 15 of our reading of Philippians chapter 3, this mindset requires maturity. Verse 15, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Well, I say to you, therefore, in conclusion, the essence of Christ-centered commitment is exciting. It needs to be exciting. It's got to be exciting. But it all depends on the attitude we possess. Brethren, may we get excited about the greatest cause in the universe, the cause of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ and our commitment to him. And we've got a lot we want to say about this commitment. And I will say this as well. Let's get excited if we possibly can, even our opportunity to be together for these next couple of days of what a blessing, a privilege it is to be Christians and to work and to serve and to worship together. There may be some here at this time that feel that they need to renew their commitment, that they need to renew themselves. Maybe there are those that want to let go of that concealed sin. You know, I know there are good brethren here to help you. There may be some here because I just a whole lot of you, I just don't know that you may have been thinking about and you may need to become a Christian, become a disciple of Jesus Christ and render obedience to the gospel and your faith, your repentance and baptism. And, and I want to tell you that I know the brethren will sit down with open Bibles and, and explore that too. But if any of those needs, any of those spiritual needs are seen at this time, we offer the song of encouragement, the song of encouragement invitation.
Let that be known. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing?